This is the Edisto TV podcast, connecting the Blackwater region. Welcome back to the Edisto TV podcast. This is episode 20. We've made it to double digits times two, Tom. And I am Hugo. This is Tom. Hello, I'm Tom. And we are going to be talking this week about um, the highlights from the South Carolina Water Resources Conference, which the folks from Clemson, Dr. Gene Eidson and those folks, uh, hosted over at the Columbia Civic Center uh, back at the beginning of the month. They were kind enough to give us press passes uh, in our guise as the Edisto TV podcast. So we went over and spent a couple of days there talking to people about water and water planning and all sorts of things that we didn't really understand very well. My first time ever having a press pass, so that was very exciting for me. Okay, it wasn't actually my first time, but I had a good time at it and learned a lot and and made a lot of good contacts, I thought. Um, So we are going to be featuring mostly highlights from the South Carolina Water Resources Conference uh, in this week's episode. But before we get to that, a few other smaller items uh, of interest that have been online and on the website and on the Facebook page this week. Uh, There is a lawsuit pending regarding the surface water withdrawal law. We mentioned this a while back. Uh, Tom, how about the article we have at the moment? Yeah, uh, there was another article. uh, It was actually a couple weeks old, but uh, at the Post and Courier, and we had quite a number of people uh, commenting and and sharing that article. Um, But really the big, uh, there was another article I thought was worthy of note, which was, uh, talking about the gubernatorial candidates and the fact that they're not mentioning water. Mm-hmm. And um, that got some traction as well. Um, on the topic of gubernatorial candidates, by the way, we are recording this on the evening of Tuesday, October 28th. My understanding is that earlier today, independent Republican Tom Irvin suspended his campaign endorsing Senator Vincent Shaheen for governor. In his remarks, Tom noted that Vincent will restore honesty and integrity to the governor's office. Take that for what it's worth. So um, it looks like there's a straight choice now, uh, basically Republican or Democrat, uh, Vincent Shaheen or Nikki Haley. And um, we're not in the business of endorsing people one way or the other here on the podcast, but we would encourage people, regardless of which way you go on the issues, to think about how these people are going to affect things like the surface water withdrawal situation and uh, make their votes accordingly depending on what they value. Right. I will say that uh, the governor's office has been silent as far as uh, trying to talk to us, uh, whereas at least Shaheen's campaign has uh, come to Wagner and talked to us about the water withdrawals. And uh, so we we do appreciate uh, somebody showing some interest. Yeah. And actually, that announcement of uh, Tom Irvin's withdrawal from the race that I just read uh, came from an email I got from our friend Ann Timberlake at the Conservation Voters of South Carolina. And uh, the tone of that press release is uh, partly uh, because the folks at CVSC have uh, endorsed Vincent Shaheen in the gubernatorial race. Um, So moving along, uh, water being ignored by the candidates, that was a very interesting article. Um, It was an interesting parallel to the one you remember I posted a couple of weeks ago where water has been a big issue in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, but also is just not on the radar of voters as they head into the election. Yeah, it's going to take uh, a continued effort on our part to make this an issue that, that politicians want to talk about. Absolutely. It's, it's an important thing, and just because it's not a crisis right now doesn't mean we ought not take action to make sure it doesn't become a crisis in the future. 
Yep. And the other uh, other big thing uh, this week online was the uh, Ace Basin. There was a really wonderful article, I thought, uh, from National Geographic that uh, got a lot of traction and a lot of comments and so forth. And then um, also WJCL had another article about uh, the Ace Basin. So, you know, this is a really important place. Uh, our Edisto River flows into it directly, and, and everything that happens upstream here does have an impact on this uh, important area. Yeah, and another item that you posted on the Edisto Concerns site uh, was that map of the Ace Basin, and that goes along really well with those two items. Yeah, I love that map. <laughs> Tom likes map. maps. Yeah. We're sitting in Tom's office. I'm looking at other maps Tom likes. <laughs> right. So Tom likes maps. And um, one last item also from what has happened in the past week, and that was, you remember last week we talked to Pinckney Michael about the Edisto Island Mostly Bluegrass Festival, and Pinckney was kind enough to uh, make it possible for me to go down and check that out. Uh, I was shooting some for my documentary about the Edisto down there and also had a heck of a good time. A lot of uh, good local products down there. Had a couple of nice uh, palmetto beers and had some boiled shrimp and some fried cheese and just generally a good time there with the folks at the Mostly Bluegrass Fest down on Edisto Island. I like the uh, time-lapse photography that you did. That was pretty cool. Seeing, the, seeing the, the those were fun around. to do, and we were there right on West End on Edisto Island. So, of course, we had a beautiful sunset, and it was a gorgeous evening. Uh, the only thing I will say was that we had black flies like you wouldn't believe. Those little biting no that you get down there. They were out in strength. So if you're going next year, assuming there is a next year, and I think there will be because it was such a success this year, take you some skin so soft or something because the black flies could have made it a misery if there hadn't been a little breeze. Yep, but good uh, good time, good music. Good, Great good music. Um, actually, as we walked up, thought it was kind of funny. The Blue Iguanas played at the uh, Friends of the Edisto annual meeting down in Orangeburg a couple of weeks ago. And as we walked in, I was thinking, that sounds very familiar. And Steve Bennett and the Blue Iguanas were on stage laying it down as we walked into the venue. Yeah, I enjoyed them very much. Good, good group. All right. So moving right along then, that is the opening for this episode, episode 20 of the Edisto TV podcast. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with highlights of the South Carolina Water Resources Conference. Hey, this is Tom from the podcast. It's football season, and Tyler Brothers has Carhartt Collegiate Gear for Carolina Clemson and Georgia Bulldogs fans. We also have beautiful game day brand boots at $100 off their list price. Visit the store in Wagner or check them out online at tylerbrothers.net. Tyler Brothers, the place to go when you want to stay away from those superstars. For more information and archived podcasts, visit us at edisto.tv. And we are back on the Edisto TV podcast, episode 20, jumping right into some highlights from the South Carolina Water Resources Conference. Day one, the panel was made up of legislators and people from sort of big users. Uh, there were people there from the power industry. Our friend David Winkles from the South Carolina Farm Bureau was there. Garrett Jobsis of American Rivers was there. He has been on the uh, podcast with us uh, that first day. Actually, he was not on the panel, but he did ask a question. So we're going to jump into these highlights, first of all, with a few words from Senator Paul Campbell, who moderated the session on day one. So here's Senator Paul Campbell. Uh, we got to move to the new technology faster, as fast as we possibly can. You're going to hear a little bit about, I think, while you're down here, the uh, intelligent river technology that uh, Dr. Eitzen has come up with at Clemson. 
for about $24 million, about $3 million per river basin. We've got eight major river basins in South Carolina. For about $24 million, we could monitor each one of our river basins from the mountains to the ocean, and we could get real-time data, real-time data. That means we don't send technicians out to take water samples, send them to the laboratory and have them analyzed, and about three or four weeks after the fact, you get the information you need to monitor what's going on in that river. With intelligent rivers, you can actually get it almost instantaneous. It goes from little sensors, it floats in the river, it goes straight to a satellite, it goes straight to the host computer, and you can tell what the flow in the river is. You can tell the depth in the river. You can tell if there's something in the river that shouldn't be there. We could actually use those type of that technology to control when people discharge into the river, whether it's a public system or a business or a private system. And we need to take advantage of that. But it, it would cost about $3 million per basin to do that. You probably hear some of the stuff that they're doing in the Savannah River right now, especially down around uh, uh, Augusta, that they're already doing some of this stuff. We need to take advantage of technology. I think it's super important going forward. You can also use that same intelligent river technology for farmers to tell if they're overwatering or underwatering a field. You know, are we putting too much water? We're we wasting water. So we, we, we can take advantage of technology to help us in so many different ways, and we need to be doing those type of things. And, Tom, up next we have Senator Robert Hayes. And uh, I know that you and I both had exactly the same reaction when we heard him say this. Um, he said Megafarm, and what yeah. happened then? <laughs> well, we were mostly looking at David Winkles because we knew that he really hated. He told us he hates that uh, phrase and he finds it uh, offensive and so forth. So to hear a state senator who is, I think this is the guy they said was the conscience of the Senate. That's what they said. To, uh, to hear a state senator uh, with a good reputation you know, use that word and say basically that uh, they're a threat and with concern uh, it was very satisfying. <laughs> All right. So here is Senator Robert Hayes. Uh, talking again at the South Carolina Water Resources Conference, day one. Uh, the key thing that I see that we need to do permitting-wise is, you know, we looked at Georgia to a certain extent when we did the water permitting, and I think Georgia had excluded agriculture, and we excluded agriculture too uh, uh, to a great extent. But I think no one really envisioned some of your mega agricultural uh, 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 farms coming in that are going to use a lot of water. So I think we'll need to look again. Uh, I don't want to cause heart failure to farm your and the rest of them because nobody wants to pick on your traditional farming. But some of these mega farms uh, could have uh, a much bigger impact maybe than big industry or cities uh, on the amount of water that they use. So I think we've got to look at that when we look at the water permitting in the future uh, to perhaps include that. So that would, uh, with that challenge, uh, I'll sit down and I'll be glad to answer any questions. Thank you. So that was Senator Robert Hayes uh, addressing the issue of how the existing Surface Water Withdrawal Act didn't really take into account some of the things that have happened subsequent to its passage. Up next, David Hyatt, representing House District 4, was also on the panel, and uh, he had this to say. As, as the previous speakers have mentioned, we talked about the surface water withdrawal permitting process, and uh, when it came over to the House, Chairman Hardwick uh, graciously uh, gave it to me and my committee. I'm the chairman of subcommittee chairman of Environmental One Subcommittee, and Chairman Hardwick assigned it to my committee. And I'll never forget the first meeting that we had. I walked in, the place is full of state stakeholders and people like Sammy Fretwell standing back there with his pad and paper in hand ready to take good notes. And 
all this kind of stuff. And uh, I walk in, and uh, my first question was, how much water do we have in South Carolina? You could have heard crickets in the room. I said, who owns the water in South Carolina? Once again, we heard crickets in the room. I said, well, we, at the time, we were in the midst of coming out of the drought. Georgia had been coming over into Lake Hartwell and taking out, getting some of our water to try to take care of Lake Lanier and some of the Atlanta situation. And I said, well, who's stopping Atlanta? Who's stopping Georgia from coming over here to get our water? Didn't hear any response from anybody. And I finally said, look, we, we got to, I've asked three simple questions. I haven't had an answer yet. We got to get, we got to get to work, folks. And before that session was over, we had a bill that the folks in the Senate had sent to us. And we had a bill that we could live with. I think the stakeholders were fairly happy with it. Most of them were. Uh, you don't always get everything you want. But at the end of the day, we had a bill and a piece of legislation that described how much water, to the best of our knowledge, how much water there was in South Carolina, who controlled the water in South Carolina, who had authority to stop Georgia, stop North Carolina from coming into the state of South Carolina. And those are the kind of things that we need to do. We've got that in place. Now we need to continue to build on that. I think we'll see that in the next legislative session. You know, Georgia, Georgia certainly needs our water. North Carolina needs our water, but South Carolina certainly needs to protect their own water. But there's a lot of folks that have an interest in it. You know, the farmers, obviously, Farm Bureau and all the farmers, Hugh Weathers and Department of Agriculture, want to make sure that agriculture gets what they need, and I certainly want to make sure they get that. DNR needs to make sure that they control their bodies of water. Industry needs to make sure that they have enough water. Department of Commerce came to us and said, hey, look, when we go to talk to a new business, we've got to guarantee them that we can supply them water. <coughs> You know, a lot of people don't take that into consideration when you're talking about water needs in the state of South Carolina. But when the governor and the Department of Commerce is out recruiting new industry and they have to use water, you've got to be able to guarantee these folks water that when they come into this state, they'll have it. So they're all very, very important issues. Dyke Spencer represents the SCAWWA Water Utility Council. He was on the resource user end of things. And um, he had this to say. We need a leader. We need somebody to lead this challenge and this charge. If we're going to do water planning in an effective way in the state, somebody's got to grab the ball and the reins and run with it, and everybody's got to get on that train together. And that's, that's, if there's a challenge, I'll lay out everybody today. That's what, that's what we've got to do better. Um, we've got a water plan that's due for a revision from five years ago. Um, it's, time, it's time to take that thing, tear it apart, and put it back together. It's not time to put a red cover on a, on a blue document. It's time to take it down piece by piece, rebuild it. Let's put a water plan together that means something, that makes us take action in the state. And, I, I, you know, I, we're overdue for that. And, we, and I think a lot of times we forget that that document is still sitting there. Um, funding is going to be a continued issue, and this is something I've heard from many utilities across, across the state, is how we're going to fund state water planning in the state. Um, water planning doesn't work real well if you've got to go beg for money every year for it. 
Okay, and you got to go demonstrate what you're going to do. But but if you have a reoccurring funding source in this state that will take care of water planning in this state, and which there's other states doing this already, that we could pattern this behind, then we are not trying to back into a dollar figure to do planning. We actually have money to do the things that a master plan and planning tells us we need to be doing. And right now, we're, we get we. These guys here, and they get hit all the time for fund, funding, but there's, it, that dollar figure comes out, and then we have to kind of back into whatever that dollar amount is. we got to figure out how to fund water planning in this state without coming to our legislative committees and begging for that money every year. And following Mr. Spencer, uh, David Winkles, the president of the South Carolina Farm Bureau, uh, had some remarks to make. We we have edited this down a little bit. If you do want to hear the complete remarks, uh, those are available online and they will have a link for those sessions on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. So again, we have edited this. I don't want to hide that in any way, but if you want to hear the complete remarks of everybody or anybody, those are online as streaming video, and you can find the link on the edisto.tv site. Well, thank you uh, so much. To, to, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today to represent the South Carolina Farm Bureau's position as it relates to conservation of our natural resources, and particularly to water use. You know, through the years, science has taught us that it's, not be- that it's best not to overtill the soil. Precision agriculture tools are in place to make certain that we put only the amount of inputs on our crops that are absolutely necessary for quality crop development and production. Crop and computer technologies are in place to closely monitor soil moisture and nutrient conditions on our crops. Successful farmers that I know make wise business decisions about those inputs. Farmers are also guided by the fact that we need to double ag productivity over the next 40 years to feed a growing world while using less land and less water. Farmers and ranchers are already doing quite a bit more with less and we'll continue to do that. The American Farm Bureau, which South Carolina Farm Bureau is affiliated with, has been involved with a project uh, with the Colorado-based Keystone Center to measure agriculture's environmental progress. After measuring five key resource indicators like land use, soil soil loss, water use, carbon emissions, and energy use over a 20-year period. Keep in mind, I said 20 years, not 50 or 100. From 1987 to 2007 tells a very positive story. Since corn, especially for renewable fuels, seems to get a lot of negative attention these days, let me use it as just one example. Over the 20 years in this study, per acre corn production grew by 41%. Per bushel land use was reduced by 37%. Per bushel soil loss was reduced by nearly 70%. Water use dropped by an average of 27% per bushel Greenhouse gas emissions were down 8% per acre or 30% per bushel. Today, there's a tremendous amount of investment in developing crops that are tolerant to variations in the availability to water. A leading company has discovered genetics that control water uptake in plants. 
the gene will actually slow the uh, metabolism of the plant to allow it to wait for rainfall. But the irrational debate on biotechnology, or genetically modified organisms, GMOs for short, has created non-tariff trade barriers that have limited worldwide adaptation of the technology. As an aside, I visited uh, Kenya about six years ago on a trip to, to design to promote the use of biotechnology. The drought-tolerant genetics were given to companies willing to breed it into seed for use in Kenya, but the hysteria in the European Union and the influence that Europe has on the African countries has stymied those advances. I tell you this to emphasize the point that science and the adoption of technology can have a dramatic impact on water usage if the public perception with no scientific basis does not halt the use of that technology. We also know about uh, uh, the Intelligent Rivers Project, and that's one reason Farm Bureau is so interested in that project. How can we really make really wise decisions without real-time data? That will make a huge change. I heard uh, recently a speaker say that this increase in information from big data per se will uh, we could actually compare the revolution that we'll see in, in what we do to the industrial revolution of the 18th century. We agree that the state needs a water plan that's updated often and comprehensively. Farm Bureau lobbied in favor of that plan that we have today and we supported the funding for that plan. There are those out there who would argue that farmers need to be held to the same regulatory requirements as manufacturing or utility users. The reality is, is that we just can't shut off the water to crops whenever there's a need. We just can't shut the spigot off and come back in two or three weeks and pick up where we left off. Most farmers, whether you're a farm 100 acres or 21,000 acres, don't have the resources to, multi to sustain multiple years with no rainfall or limited rainfall. In closing, agribusiness is the state's largest economic engine, and like any other industry in the state, we hope that we can grow our crop production to generate more jobs and contribute more tax dollars to support our state. In order to have growth, we must have regulatory stability. We cannot let our laws and regulations be written and rewritten by a motion and amended on which fits and whims. Decisions must be based on sound science, math, historical data, and hopefully real-time data in the future. I'd say that Farm Bureau has a really good track record of working with divergent groups to seek compromise and consensus as we fulfill a stewardship role in working with God's creation. Ag has demonstrated it can adapt with the aid of technology. Before I sit down, I want to make a comment. We just heard recently that 33 people move into the low country every day, and they're counting on water and utilities. They're also counting on food. Remember, every time you sit down at the table, <clears throat> unless you grew it yourself, that food started on a farm somewhere. Thank you. After David Winkles concluded the remarks from the session participants, they made way for some questions and comments. 
Uh, first up, Garrett Jobsis of American Rivers, or as I think he says it, Jobsis, um, of American Rivers uh, had a few points to make, and there was some discussion. So here's some of that with Garrett. You might remember he was on the podcast with us a few weeks ago. First of all, thank all the speakers. It was a very informative, a great, um, great uh, set of comments were made. My name is Garrett Jobsis. I'm the Southeast Regional Director for American Rivers. Uh, one thing that especially resonated with me were the comments of Dyke Spencer about the need for uh, a new state water plan and uh, stable recurring funding for our, our water infrastructure and our water resources. And I would just like to ask the elected officials here, um, you know, again, with that very real need we have, uh, and as you all know, we have these continual annual battles for more funding, what are the opportunities that we can uh, take advantage of to create that stable funding resource? Uh, for our water infrastructure and our other uh, water needs in the state. Um, do you have suggestions on how we can move forward with that? But the stable funding source is the existing uh, funding source, and that's rates. In South Carolina and the country, we're going to pay more to fix the roads. We're going to pay more. We're paying more for electrical usage now, and we're going to have to pay probably more to reinvest in the water infrastructure. Um, that's not going to be a politically popular pill to um, diagnose or to prescribe, but it's the nature of inflation and the cost of living and the cost of um, building out the infrastructure. It's, it's, and we are struggling with that big time right now as we address this transportation infrastructure uh, debate. But I don't see anything better um, as... Senator Campbell said uh, a lot of infrastructure programs that were initiated at the federal level are either dwindling or dying out, winding down. And uh, we have to continue, to, like local government tells the state government all the time, well, we have to, <laughs> y'all prescribe it, we have to pay for it. Uh, well, we're in the same boat here as it relates to, unless something dramatic happens at the federal level from a, from a funding or a a bonding basis, uh, yeah, we, we need to think big. We've got to dream big to keep the country forward moving. But uh, I, as far as the mechanism, the mechanism's already already there. Now, in my community, where we have a dwindling number of ratepayers on our existing utility systems, um, it goes back to the big question: Well, we've got to grow our economy. We've got to see this whole state from not just the tourism areas, but in a utilitarian community like I live in that was thriving 30, 40, 50 years ago but has been in somewhat of a decline since. Mm -hmm. um, we've got to have jobs. We've got to see an uptick in the overall economic well-being of every community in the state. So the most talked about comment, though, of the entire uh, two-day event, I think, is, is coming up. And this is Oscar Bradley Eckhoff, an 87-year-old geophysicist who's in a nursing home down around Orangeburg, right on the Edisto River, and uh, he had this to say. My name is Oscar Bradley Eckhoff. I live at the Oaks, just south of Orangeburg, retirement community. I'm 87 years old. I'm a geologist, geophysicist, and I have learned that the human species is incapable of foresight. 
it cannot perceive or be interested in what is going to happen five years in the future, 50 or 500 years in the future if we do such and such today. There is no chance whatsoever of economic growth continuing because when we use up all the natural resources, everything collapses and the more and the faster we use up our natural resources, the faster the collapse will occur. Well, I think that's about all I can say. All right. I'll mm. take this one too. Okay. And then last but not least, to close out the session, our uh, my co-host, Hugo Crispin, uh, gives this challenge to the panel. Have time for one more question? Uh, my name is Hugo Crispin. I am a property owner on the North Fork of the Edisto. And with the potato farm arriving on the South Fork, I became involved in some sort of citizen advocacy and journalism things. Um, through that, I've had a chance to talk to Mr. Winkles. I've had a chance to meet the folks from Walters Farms. And, you know, I guess I would just like to task you all with, at some point, we need to do something. And I understand that the overriding interest here is not to act quickly and intemperately and do the wrong thing inadvertently. But at some point, we need to stop talking and start doing. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. The absolute best thing about that clip of audio is that in using it on the podcast, we managed to remove the video from it. <laughs> I'm deeply pleased you that the great. world doesn't see that. You Thanks very much. I, I, I look like I look. So those are a few excerpts from the plenary session on day one. The plenary sessions were held the first couple of hours of each day of the conference for two days. We're going to jump right now into day two and really a lot of the conversation there was much more in general about planning and not so much about the surface water issue. But I did think that what Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League had to say was very interesting. So we've got a pretty good-sized chunk of Dana's comments here, and we're just going to let those roll. I'd like to mention two issues that have been referred to already today that I think ought to be integrated into our water policy, water plan, whatever we call the complex of things that determine how we use water in South Carolina and conserve it. The first is the acknowledgement that water quality and water quantity inexorably and indisputably depend on land use. Heather mentioned that earlier, so did Eric. Watersheds are the physical infrastructure that determine the availability of surface and groundwater. We have not paid enough attention to that in crafting water policies. Simply put, the health of our watersheds determines the health of our streams and our creeks and rivers. It is not a, um, to suggest, obviously, that withdrawal and discharge policies are unimportant. They obviously are. It's simply to note that as we deliberate over withdrawals and discharges, uh, it's, too, it's often too easy to ignore the somewhat more convoluted issues surrounding watersheds, but we cannot do that. In the early 2000s, I wrote a report for the Pew Oceans Commission on development on the coast and its impact on, water, on waters of the um, coastal zone. One of the central themes was when Watersheds reach a level of impervious coverage, 
uh, and it's around 10%, the streams and rivers within those watersheds become quickly degraded. We paid little attention to that fact uh, and very much to the detriment of our water bodies, especially on the coast where growth is so rapid and so, uh, and so extensive. The second point I'd like to make is that water is a common resource, obviously. The fact that it's available for virtually no cost whatsoever to anyone who happens to be first in line to take it is illogical and unsustainable. Every speaker today has emphasized the value of water. But what exactly is the value of water according to the state of South Carolina? It is zero. That is an absurd situation, I think, that we face. It is ironic, I think, also in a state that values a commitment to free markets that our public policy regarding the use of water nowhere deploys the instrument of markets to impose a level of prudence and discipline on the beneficial use of water. Many states charge a fee for water. California, for example, charges about five cents per thousand gallons, and that is a state now that literally the world has changed over the last two to three years with the drought. Um, and they were maybe too late, maybe too late. We aren't too late. Water fees, water charges could also stimulate more creative and innovative technologies to conserve uh, this essential resource. Now, I recognize I'm not naive uh, enough to think that setting a price on water is a simple matter. There are numerous potential pitfalls, there are unintended consequences, but there is no excuse to ignore the reality that when water is taken for private use, it is subtracting an asset from the public balance sheet. On the positive side, a, a properly crafted fee could be deployed to extremely beneficial purposes. And you've heard today, everyone has said, we don't have enough money to manage our water resources. A fee could help us do that. But this also brings me back to my first point. Watersheds, as I said, are the infrastructure of South Carolina's water system. They provide irreplaceable public values, and yet they are virtually all privately owned. The regulation of watersheds, to the extent that there is any, and in most parts of the state there is none, occurs at the county and municipal level. Now, counties and cities are not charged with protecting state resources, and understandably so. Yet, they are on the front line. They are the only ones who apply any level of guidance to the uh, management of watersheds, to the disposition of watersheds. So with that in mind, if South Carolina were to charge a fee for water use, that fee could be deployed to protect private watersheds. Rather than regulating at the state level, the fee could be used to conserve parts of watersheds according to the science that Eric referred to and we understand very well. And I will want to make one editorial comment. There's a lot of science out there. There is not any dispute about the need to conserve water. 
There is no dispute about the need to conserve watersheds. We don't need to wait for more studies to decide to move forward. Now, obviously, there's some fine-tuning that needs to be done, but we should not delay in this effort under the guise of waiting for more science. So my suggestion with respect to water policy is this. We acknowledge the indisputable fact that watersheds provide essential services and specifically in the arena of maintaining sustainable water supplies. That we acknowledge that these watersheds are threatened by development and all you have to do is look at the newest North Carolina State USGS study of the Southeast to confirm what you already know. And that the instruments of planning for watershed use are only available at the local level where it is not appropriate to, preserve, to use those instruments or effective to preserve a state resource. And so I suggest that we acknowledge that water has immense public economic value, that is public, as a public asset it should be integrated into a market-based allocation process, and simply that the state should charge a fee that would be used uh, for many purposes ranging from infrastructure to planning to watershed protection. Thank you very much for asking me to speak today. So good comments there from Dana Beach. And uh, next up, no surprise, Hugo Crispin from Edisto TV. And let's see what he says to uh, David Wilson from South Carolina DHEC. Yeah, and I'll explain here. David Wilson was one of the two Davids who came up and uh, talked to us in the – um, co-op building over in Aiken back on January 7th. So a lot of the comments that we're having back and forth as we're talking here relate to what he had to say in that session. So we'll hear those exchanges and then we'll come back and talk about that just a little bit. Yesterday's session I waited until last, so I'll go first today. I also took notes this time. Um, as a citizen stakeholder, it's difficult to get a holistic grasp of water issues and which agencies control or have authority over various aspects of regulation. Uh, as the South Edisto withdrawal registration was happening, it was frustrating to try to get definitive answers because every new question seemed to involve another agency. Uh, how to simplify and clarify who's responsible and who to contact with issues and concerns? That's one of my questions. Second, implementation. We've heard a lot about Mr. Rentiers was kind enough to endure uh, some of my questions yesterday in his session. It's discouraging to know previous water plans have gone unimplemented so what can we do to avoid this becoming another such situation? And uh, studies and data are great, but how long can we wait before a looming threat becomes an actual crisis, which goes to uh, Hamilton's final point there. And finally, is complexity an absolute necessity in looking for answers here? Are there some simple basic things like protecting minimum in-stream flows, for example, that we can protect in policy in advance of more granular and complete elements of a complete and comprehensive plan can we afford to wait for those macro-scale items while detailed studies and plans are being made? Thanks. Well, actually, I wish I could say that there was another agency you could talk to about uh, surface water withdrawals, but it's DHEC. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would like to clear up maybe one misconception about the surface water withdrawal decisions that are made. Um, we do talk with DNR quite a bit. Um, and Ken has made his folks available to us um, as we're looking at withdrawal issues. Uh, so I heard some discussions possibly yesterday about there being some type of prohibition, if you will, for DHEC and DNR to work together on withdrawal issues. 
that's not there. Now, we have prescribed authorities and things that we have to do under the law. And DHEC accepts that responsibility, and we do those. Um, but there, there's no closed door, there's no wall between DHEC and DNR as we look at these issues. So, uh, again, questions about water withdrawals, DHEC. On the minimum midstream flows, those are included in the Surface Water Permitting Act already. So just, just recognize that that is already there and is being used. Understand, there, there is a different consideration for agricultural withdrawals. You know, on the question of uh, how do we get this plan implemented, um, I think the bottom line on that is go back to grassroots politics. Go talk to your representative and senator and make sure they're aware of your concerns. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think there's a growing recognition in the legislature that we need to address these issues, so we have a pretty good starting point. So I would just recommend engage in the democratic process that we are fortunate to have in this country and go from there. Ken, a part of his question involved the two state water plants that have already been put out by DNR. Yes, sir. And what you brought up in your talk earlier was that these plans have kind of been shelved without being implemented. I, I think part of his question is, how do we implement a plan that hasn't been created when we have plans that are on the shelves that we could be utilizing and building upon? Well, and, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier as well that uh, we have done these some of these things piecemeal, but... Uh, we really have taken that initiative and a lot of the, um, the points in the plan and recommendations uh, do not have any, quote, teeth in them. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing some of these things, but I guess my point is that uh, to have a really effective plan, a statewide water plan, it has to have some legal authority behind it, and we haven't had that yet. And I'm hopeful that the, the excellent product that we expect to come up with will be enough to demonstrate to our legislators that, yes, these make a lot of sense. Uh, so we're making some inroads there, but exactly how we're going to do that, um, it, that's evolving. Um, you know, it's disappointing that these past two plans were not adopted. Some of these things made so much sense that we were able to do them anyway. Uh, but um, the bottom line is we need the legislative support behind it, and uh, we're going to try to keep working on that. Okay, now I want to make it very clear that David Wilson and I are not in any way adversaries, but I, I did not have the feeling that David necessarily understood what we were talking about when we were talking about there being a separation between what he does at DHEC in issuing surface water withdrawal registrations vis-a-vis uh, -vis the conversations that they can or cannot have with DNR. They said specifically when they addressed us back in January in Aiken that there was no need to talk to DNR 
about a surface water withdrawal because the way the rule and the legislation is written is that there is no place for DNR to have any input on those issues. And I did not think that his answer here at the plenary session was particularly responsive, and it didn't take into account what he'd already told us. So I addressed him after the session privately, and he agreed that an ag registration does not involve any kind of conversation between DNR and DHEC. Well, he also says that, oh, yeah, there's a minimum in-stream flow. Well, and he has this little asterisk next to his head that says, except for ag withdrawals, which he, I think he knows that we're talking about the ag withdrawal and the fact that there is no minimum in-stream flow requirement, which is what exactly he said to us down in Aiken. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this is an ongoing thing, but didn't want to let him have the last word, so to speak, when we were sitting here doing the podcast. Um, we also got some input from Ken Rentiers of DNR. Um, it was interesting. I sat in on one of Ken's sessions during the afternoon sessions on, on day one, and he was talking about how there have been these two prior state water plans that got shelved without ever being implemented. So the thing that Ken Rentier said that I uh, believe strongly in is that it's time to go back to grassroots politics. And I think he's saying what probably the same thing David Wilson's saying, which is if you want to change something, change the law, change the mind of your legislators. And so that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. That's what we're trying to do, you know, day to day. And um, so I appreciate Ken Rentier saying it the way he did. Uh, next up, another familiar voice, uh, Mr. Doug Busby from Wagner, South Carolina, had, had his chance at the microphone. Good morning. My name is Doug Busby, and I'm from down in a little town called Wagner in the Edisto region. And I have no other credentials uh, to put me here other than I was born and raised in the Edisto River. And I love the people of that region, region and I love the people of South Carolina. And as you well know, many of you are well aware that we are in a struggle because of a big ag registration and it, it brought to light some flaws that are in the service water law and i in no way uh, want to villainize the farmer because he is within the law i know him personally and he is a good man but it has brought to light some struggles that uh, we need to face and we need to deal with my question to each of you is when is your agent going to protect the people and the environment that you're charged with protecting. When is your agency going to st stand up to the politicians and say, hey, we got a problem with this law? Because the same law applies to industry. And what we have seen is it overallocates our water and inflates, inflates the amount of water that is actually in the river by as much as four times. And keep in mind, we were not in a drought. How many times is it going to inflate the amount of water that is in a river when we are in a severe drought? And it affects every river in the state. So when are you, when do y'all plan on standing up and saying, hey, we got a problem and so, to our governor? So could we uh, address that question? Please. Good to see you again <laughs> from, uh, from, from a number of months ago. And, yeah, we had a very robust discussion on this. And, and Really, you know, um, the, the discussion we had back early in the year with all the concerned folks, and it was a very cold night, we got together and did that. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously on a lot of people's mind. 
I will tell you this, uh, you know, from DHEC's standpoint, and I know folks don't always like to hear this, we're authorized and we're required to follow the law. Um, and we do that. And we do a very good job of that. And we get support where needed from DNR when we do that. Um, you know, if there's going to be changes uh, to how the Surface Water Withdrawal Act is implemented from a what it says standpoint, that's going to have to start with changes to the law. Uh, it cannot start at the agency. Uh, it, and I'll just be very, very clear with that. Uh, so we implement the law as, we, as, as it's on the books. You know, that, that law went through a very long process. Uh, there was a lot of stakeholder involvement. Uh, there was a lot of, it was a four-year process, and there was a lot of stakeholder involvement even before it got there. Uh, there were a lot of voices heard. Um, and so, you know, I imagine that if there's going to be, if there's, ever, if there's a change to it, it's going to be that same very, very robust process. But from an agency standpoint, we implement the law. Doug pretty much laid it on him there that he, he wants the people from within the state agencies to go to the powers that be and tell them that there's a problem with the Surface Water Withdrawal Act. Uh, I think that I can say fairly safely that there didn't seem to be a huge appetite for that amongst the uh, regulatory folks who were there, but that's understandable. You know, they work in the system where the heads of those agencies are appointed by the governor, but for the most part, the staff of the agencies are professionals who are there year in, year out, regardless of who's in power. And obviously, you know, there are things you can and can't do in that sort of an environment. Yeah. And I, I don't think they're going to give, but I also uh, appreciate Doug. And I think anybody else who puts the heat on them and says, look, you, don't you have a conscience? I mean, don't you have some kind of responsibility to speak your mind? And maybe they do. Maybe they do in closed doors, but they're not going to publicly uh, oppose, you know, what their boss tells them to do. All right. And with that, we have run pretty close to being long for this week's episode. Uh, we haven't edited it, of course, as we're recording these comments, but I'm guessing that 30 minutes has come and gone. So we're going to wrap it up for this week's episode, episode 20 of the Edisto TV podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Hugo. And we will see everybody next week with episode 21 of the Edisto TV podcast. This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.